How soon are we to Christ's second coming? And what did Christ say must occur before he comes? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. I'm Kevin Harris, and today, Pat welcomes a special guest, Pastor Peter Tsukahira. He's a Japanese-American who is now a citizen of Israel. And in this presentation before a live audience, you'll hear stunning evidence that Jesus' words in Matthew 24 are quickly taking place. Now, as you listen today, please stop by our website, evidenceandanswers.org. There you have access to a multitude of audio and written material from Dr. Zucharin on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism and Pat's new book, The Apologetics of Jesus, co-written with Dr. Norman Geisler. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now let's go to Pastor Sukahira for part one of his message called God's Tsunami. Now one of the things I, I really wanted to start out by saying is that in my lifetime, and I was 58 years old yesterday, uh, so I was born in 1950, uh, in, in my lifetime I've seen this tremendous cultural shift in the United States. Uh, and maybe I should explain. I was born in Boston. My father was finishing his uh, doctorate at Harvard in Asian history. He was like, became a specialist in Japanese history. So I was born in Boston. We lived in different places. He taught at UC Berkeley for a couple years. And then in 1960, when I was 10 years old, uh, we moved to Japan. So I spent my teenage years in Tokyo and then came back, came back to the United States. But one of the things I've seen in, in my generation is this tremendous cultural shift of the U.S. from this, the leadership, cultural leadership of the United States on the East Coast to the, really to the West Coast. And some of the signs of this, I think about in, in the last 10 years ago maybe, California surpassed New York as the single state in America with the greatest, with the strongest economy, even with the demise of the dot-com boom uh, out here in California. So California, you know, I think it's, you're the, you're the eighth if, it was just, if you were just a nation on your own, you'd be the eighth wealthiest nation in the world, just California. I worked in the computer industry when I was in seminary, and in my early years as a pastor, I was a tent-making pastor. And in those days, uh, there was one company that dominated the rest of the industry. At one point, it had 70% of the, of the computer industry. It was an industry unto itself, and of course, the company was called IBM. And uh, now, we've lived through that shift from that whole stage in that industry to Microsoft, okay? So IBM's headquarters was in Armonk, New York, and Microsoft's, of course, is in Redmond, Washington. So we've gone east to west. When I was um, a kid in high school, I, I did play basketball, and the, and the shoes that everybody wanted to wear when I played were called Converse All-Stars. Now only punk rockers, or I don't, know, I don't know who wears Converse anymore. They're still out there, okay? But Converse headquarters was in New Hampshire, and they were, they were recently purchased uh, by Nike, whose headquarters is in Portland, Oregon. You know, I think maybe these are, these are tr little trivia facts, okay? But, but I, I believe they're, they're indicative of a deeper and more profound cultural shift of this nation from, from east to west, and, and it leads into what I'm going to say today about God's work uh, in, in the world. In the end, this is a very simple message. I think once you get it, you'll, you'll really realize how uh, that to understand the world in this way can be very, very important. So I hope that, uh, hope that I can do a, a decent job of it. Now, it starts with two things that Jesus himself said must happen before he returns. And so uh, if you have your New Testaments, let's get it out and turn to Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Here's towards the very end of his ministry. Jesus is lamenting over, over Jerusalem. And in fact, when you come and to Israel, uh, you can go to the very place where it's believed he spoke these words uh, on the Mount of Olives, looking back uh, across the Kidron Valley to the old city. 
he said in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, uh, of course, he's quoting from the scriptures, and in Hebrew, we would say this, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, Baruch haba, blessed is he, blessed is the one who comes. But you know, in, in modern Hebrew, Baruch haba simply means welcome. Someone comes to your door, and you go, Baruch haba, you know, welcome, come in. And uh, so what Jesus is saying to his city, Jerusalem, he's saying, you won't see me, I'm not going to return. And of course, we know from the, from the scriptures that he's returning to the Mount of Olives. And so, which is Jerusalem. So he's not going to come back until there is a Jerusalem that says, welcome, King Jesus. Which leads me to believe he's talking about a messianic Jerusalem. In fact, some people would say he's using Jerusalem really as a symbol for the nation, the way sometimes our newspapers do. You know, you might read a, uh, a newspaper headline, uh, Washington uh, cautions Beijing over uh, inferior milk products or tainted milk products, all right? So there, Washington and Beijing, of course, are using, being used symbolically uh, for their nation. So maybe what Jesus is saying here is that I'm not coming back until it can be printed, Jerusalem welcomes Yeshua, the king, to come back and to reign. Okay, so what this speaks to us in the, in the messianic body in Israel is that he's expecting a messianic Jerusalem before his return. Okay, that's one of the fulfillments. And that, that begins to explain why there are congregations today in Israel, why it's important for us to preach the gospel, why it's important for Gentile Christians not just to stand with Israel, but to understand that, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, not all Israel is Israel. There is a messianic Israel. There's a saved Israel, an Israel within Israel. And uh, messianic Israel is really the, the redemptive seed of the entire country. Uh, some people come and they spend time in Israel and they, and they really notice after a while that our country is not a godly country. We've got major, major problems and injustices and all kinds of uh, issues, okay? All kinds of dysfunctions. And, uh, you know, Christians will say, you know, God would be well within his rights to judge the Jewish people again. You know, in a way, uh, we who, who are dedicated to preaching the gospel there could, uh, could in a realistic sense, almost agree. You know, you're right. We are, we are an ungodly nation. Our, our political leaders are ungodly people. They need all the, all the prayer in the world. But that only highlights the significance and the importance of the redeemed remnant. I say to people like that, I tell them, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah weren't destroyed be, for their sin. They were, uh, God was willing to spare the entire, those entire cities if he could find just 10 righteous people in them. They were destroyed for the lack of a remnant. And so that's why it's important that there's a redeemed remnant in Israel today. And I believe this scripture speaks of its growth and the importance of our mission, which is to preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile in Israel so that we can have a time of national revival, which we believe the New Testament predicts. Okay, so here's one fulfillment that must take place according to Jesus before his return. Jerusalem, you have to say, Jesus, you're welcome here. Come back. Okay. What's the other fulfillment? Let's take a look further down in Matthew 24, the next chapter. Okay. Matthew 24, verse 14. Now, this is a fascinating chapter. And if you're at all interested in the end times, I highly recommend that you begin with a study of Matthew chapter 24, because uh, this has been 
called the backbone of biblical prophecy. It's the spine on all the other prophetic chapters in the, in the Bible uh, attach here. It's important because this is what Jesus himself said about the end times in a private conversation to his own disciples in response to a direct question. They get him alone on the Mount of Olives and they say, tell us what are the signs of your return? And he tells them, and it's in Matthew chapter 24. Wars and rumors of wars, and we don't have time to get into that, but it does talk about the, the, the era leading up to his return, and I believe that we've already entered that era, and that we are dealing with wars and rumors of wars. He said, see that you're not frightened by these things? These things must come to pass. Nation will rise against nation, but the end is not yet. And he ends that portion of his, of his teaching on the end times with this verse, in verse 14, and he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what I gather from this is that Jesus is expecting this transforming power of the gospel to go to every nation. I see in this the justice of God. When he sits on his great throne and judges the nations, there will not be raised fists out there somewhere in the back People from uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, protesting that God gave the Europeans 20 centuries with the gospel and never visited their nation once. That he gave America wave after wave of awakening so that, uh, so that you, can count the, you can count the waves by naming the preachers who rode those waves, starting with Jonathan Edwards and, and D.L. Moody and Charles Finney and Billy Graham and all, all the rest, Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham and... and you name it, you've had so many waves of the gospel, and, and when did the people of Iran ever have one, okay? So I, I believe what Jesus is saying in this, he's saying, I'm not coming back until every nation is visited. And I, I further want to make the point that he says the gospel of the kingdom, and I believe that this is a significantly different gospel than is preached in most churches today. I believe in most evangelical churches today, we settle for a subset of the gospel of the kingdom that might be called the gospel of salvation. And we, we believe that you, you, you go out and you, you talk to people and you, you pray with people and you preach the gospel to them and you get them to read the four spiritual laws and you lead them in the sinner's prayer and you bring them to church and then they get counted on Sunday and your job is done. That's part of the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is much bigger than that. And more often than not, I'm now being asked more to speak on this area of what is the kingdom of God and what does God expect? Because to the, to the Jews, the kingdom of God, it had to do with their entire nation. They were the nation that God chose to be king of. He met them in the desert. He, he, he said, you are going to be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm going to be your king. Moses is just going to be my prophet. He's just the servant of God. I'm the king of Israel. And then when they got into the land and they demanded a human king from, from Samuel, remember that? Samuel went to God and prayed about it. And God said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me from being king over them. And so then you have the human kings and it's a long slide downhill from the, the, the pinnacle of the Davidic kingdom. It was a disaster. Human kings were a disaster for Israel. And then after the 400 years that uh, Pat told us about, the intertestamental period where there was no prophetic voice in Israel, then a voice comes crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And Jesus comes preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. So they believed that he had come to reestablish God as king of their nation. And what that meant to Israel was that God ruled every part of their nation. 
God didn't just rule their, their uh, Sabbath assemblies. God ruled every area. And, and the reason I can say this with biblical confidence is because the rulership of God was contained in the law that he gave to Israel on Mount Sinai. And we have this in the first five books of the Bible. And even a casual reading of the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books, will realize it's God's instructions, God's commands, not just to the religious sector of society. I mean, how to run uh, a worship service and a prayer meeting. Okay, you can find those, those principles and those commands in the Torah, but, it's, but they're there amongst all kinds of other commands. How to uh, clean your city, how to, how, to, uh, how to go to war, how to do business, how to establish justice in your courts, what foods to eat, what foods not to eat, what clothes to wear. How about a whole entire annual calendar? It's all there, all in the law, in God's rulership of his nation when he was king of Israel, in his nation, he ruled every single area of society. And this is something, it, tragically, the Christian church has lost. And because of that, we're retreating from the mainstream of culture because we don't know how to rule in culture anymore. And if you settle for, for just the, the, uh, the gospel of salvation, you're going to end up pushed into a corner and you're going to call that corner Sunday. And you know, in some countries where the church allows this to happen, the next people on the scene are the Muslims. The Muslims come in and say, hey, you know what? We, we don't see it that way. We have this thing called Sharia law, and we are ready to rule the whole package. We have Islamic banking. We know how to run your home. We know we'll tell you what your wife should wear. We'll tell you the foods to eat. We'll come in. We have, we have the whole package. And even in Europe, in what was once Christian Europe, you're beginning to see this transformation take place. At the same time, in what was once Christian Europe, they're getting to the point where they've, they've, uh, they've accepted things as same-sex marriage and they promote abortion. And you know what those two things have in common? They are anti-population growth. Long-term, you embrace same-sex marriage, you embrace abortion, and you're going to go out of business. You'll just disappear from the face of the earth. So you look at a country like Denmark today. They tell me that Denmark's reproduction rate is something like 1.1 or 1.2, somewhere around there, children per family. And you need 2.3 just to main, maintain uh, equilibrium. So if you have a society that's down 1.2, 1.3, give it a couple generations, and you're just not going to have enough people to do all the jobs in society. That's exactly what they're finding out. So what are they doing? Are they increasing their birth rate? Are they changing their laws? No. What they're doing is they're importing a lot of guest workers. And guess what? Most of those guest workers are Muslims. And the Muslims come to Denmark not to become good Danes, right? They're not looking to assimilate. They're looking to establish the Muslim kingdom. And so what they're saying now is that in some of these countries, the day could come that the, the Danish people wake up one morning and they've been outvoted in their country. Okay, they, they, don't rule, they don't run their country anymore because they've been outvoted. Now what are they going to do? They, they're committed to democracy. How are they going to get their country back? So this is the process that, that you see. The church simply cannot retreat from the gospel of the kingdom. God is king of the whole package. He wants to rule the marketplace. He wants to rule in the offices. He wants to rule in the government. He wants to rule in the court system. He wants to rule in arts and entertainment. He wants to rule in education. He wants to rule in the home. And when we begin to compromise on that and, and step back from the, from the wholeness of the gospel of the kingdom, we're going to, we're going to see our, our influence in society begin to um, be reduced and our ability to, to influence um, 
influence the decisions of our, of our society that are also going to be reduced. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And so Jesus, so it's really important to understand what he's saying. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness. It's going to happen. Witness is related to the word for martyr. It means there's going to be people giving their entire lives, laying down their lives, like, like you and I do on a daily basis to serve the kingdom as a witness to advance this kingdom. He says, it's going to happen in all the world to all the nations before I come back. So let's take a look. This is the big picture now, and we're going to have to move fast, okay? But I'd like to give you the picture of where did this gospel of the kingdom actually go? What happened when it got there, and where is it going today? Because this will give you an understanding of what is yet to be accomplished before this particular prophecy from the lips of the Lord himself. Uh, where is, when will that be fulfilled? Okay, so let's begin at the beginning. You ready? Let's buckle your seatbelts. Turn with, with me to Acts chapter 16. And let's take a look. This is, uh, this is the account of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. Now, I like the second one almost better than the first. And in fact, technically, I would, I would argue about the first of Paul's missionary journeys really being a missionary journey. Okay, because he didn't cross any real cultural barriers. In this first journey, if you take a look in your, the maps in the back of your Bible, he went from Jerusalem and he went into what is today southern Turkey. And he evangelized and preached the gospel and then he came back into Israel. Why don't I think that that was cross-cultural? Because Paul was from southern Turkey, right? He was from Tarsus. He wasn't a native of Jerusalem. So what he did was he left Jerusalem where he was residing and where he'd been studying. Uh, and he went into a place where he knew the language and he knew the people and he knew the geography and he preached the gospel there and he came back, home, back, to, back into the land of Israel. But the second journey, I really believe he had heard from the Holy Spirit that, that he had been called to take the gospel wherever the Holy Spirit was going to lead him. And so I really see this particular journey as really being the significant one. And so let's take a look at what happened, starting in verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And they came to Mysia, and they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he'd seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul is starting here in Jerusalem, and he went north into what is today southern Turkey. And that, by the way, that's Tarsus. That's where he was born. And then it says something very unusual in verse 6. It says, He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, what that means to me is maybe it was his natural inclination to turn east here and to preach over here, deeper into Asia than, than, than he was. But uh, it says that the Holy Spirit didn't allow him. Now, if he'd been allowed by the Holy Spirit to go in that direction, maybe our first New Testaments would have been written in Chinese, and we'd be uh, meeting today to pray about the evangelization of Europe. Okay, but, but in fact, he was forbidden, and so that verse 7 says he tried to go to Bithynia, which is up here in the north, and it says something very unusual in verse 7. It says the Spirit of Jesus did not permit him. So again, he was, he was uh, denied access into this area, and that's why he went all the way west, preaching the gospel as he went, until he came to this little town called Troas. And the reason he stopped in Troas is because Troas is on the beach. It's the, it's the site of ancient Troy. And there he sent out emails and faxes to his intercessors and uh, asked them to pray. Uh, now, actually, I think uh, that he fasted and prayed. 
And uh, according to Dr. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, it said they had a, he had a vision in the night, and in his vision, a man of Macedonia was saying to him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And Dr. Luke writes, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. They knew it was God. They knew this was God's direction, and that's why on this journey, Paul goes over into Macedonia and Greece before he returns to the land of Israel. I believe these verses are some of the, the most strategic verses in the New Testament, and I'll tell you why. Up until this time in Acts chapter 16, the gospel has been geographically an Asian phenomenon. You know, Israel, we're geographically in Asia. We're just the western side of the Asian continent. And Turkey, of course, is called Asia Minor. So the, the gospel and the Bible is really an Asian document. The Jewish people are Asian people. Jesus is an Asian Messiah. And Paul the Apostle was an Asian apostle. But the man that he saw in his vision, the Macedonian man, was not Asian. So Paul saw in his vision a European man. And the European man was saying to him, come over to Europe, bring your gospel, bring this message of transformation to us. And they knew that it was God. And furthermore, Paul knew that the direction that God had given him was west. And I believe that got so deep in him, it became his ministry direction for the rest of his life. And I also believe that this gospel of the kingdom has been moving west from that time even until today. The gospel originated here in Israel. It went up into what is today Turkey. Paul took it to Troas and then he had the Macedonian vision. And so he took this gospel into Macedonia and what is today Greece. And this gospel, the transforming power of this gospel began to saturate the Greek-speaking world. It completely changed the Greek-speaking world. And because this gospel gained so many adherents in that part of the world, the first New Testaments were written in the Greek language. And that's why you have, you have New Testament letters written to Greek cities. He, Paul wrote letters to Philippi, to Corinth, to Thessalonica. That's why he preached on Mars Hill in Athens. So this gospel swept into the Greek-speaking world and began to saturate it. Paul himself said at the end of his career, I've fully preached the gospel throughout the entire World. He, he used the term Illyricum, which is today modern Albania. So during that whole, that whole region, he himself preached, plus the, the disciples that he made. In addition to that, when he wrote his letter to Rome, towards the end of his lifetime, uh, towards the end of his ministry, Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 15, he said, I'm not, I've never been to you, but I'm planning to come to you, and I will come to Rome on my way to Spain. So it's clear that, that by the end of his career, it was in Paul's mind to take the gospel all the way west from here all the way over here. And northern Spain is as far west as you can get before you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean. It's as far west as you can go in Europe. And remember, Paul wrote this 1,400 years before Columbus. They didn't know that there was any other land out here. So basically what he's saying at the end of his Roman letter, he's saying, he's saying, God has given me this direction to bring the gospel west, and I'm ready to take it to the end of the world. That's really what he's saying. I'm taking it to the end of the world. Now, we don't believe that he, he actually got that far, because what happened was the gospel then began to follow the, all the roads in this great empire, and in those days, all the roads led to where? All to Rome. And so the gospel then became embedded in the heart of the 
of the Roman Empire, and there it fought a life or death struggle with this Roman imperial system. And you, you know the stories from your study of history and early Christianity. They threw their early believers to the lions because they wouldn't uh, bow down and worship the emperor as God. The early believers uh, were enslaved, they were crucified, they were driven out of Rome, they began to live in places called the catacombs, these cities underground, some of them five stories underground. That's where this first symbols of Christianity emerged because they were secret symbols that were carved into the stone of these, uh, of these uh, catacombs and Christians would learn to identify one another through them. So that fish symbol that you see, you know, it did not originate as a bumper sticker. It was actually an early symbol of Christianity, you know, that they found carved into the, into the stone walls of these, of these catacombs. And uh, eventually, of course, Rome changed. And uh, again, I, you know, I'm simplifying here because I really want to get you along uh, th through this message. But Rome, of course, uh, was corrupt. And Rome, of course, was arrogant and proud and cruel. And eventually, Rome began to crumble and weaken. And you know from your study of history that what eventually happened to Rome was that Rome was, was conquered by the barbarians. I think uh, my, my books would say sacked by the barbarians. Okay, so after this period of, uh, of decadence, uh, these semi-civilized, savage, primitive, pagan tribes from the north came down and, and conquered what was once the mighty empire. Well, we have run out of time, so let's pick it up there next time on Evidence and Answers. By the way, if you want to keep a quality apologetics program on the air and on the web, please support Evidence and Answers with your prayers and financial gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing the many resources we have online, including Pat's new book with Norman Geisler, the apologetics of Jesus. So check out our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you can also invite Pat to speak at your next event, church, campus, or conference on the most crucial issues facing the world today and how the Christian worldview provides the best answers to the best questions. That's evidenceandanswers.org. I'm Kevin Harris. Be sure and join us again for Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.